Most CEOs are over time really trying to grow the I think if you're a really good CEO, you should be trying to shrink the box. Um, so every year or every quarter, whatever your planning cycle is, you should be like, how do I make my box even smaller? <laughs> so that really gives an opportunity for people to really, really innovate. Welcome to Array Podcast, the platform to discover hacks and skills you need at different stages of building your business. I'm your host, Shruti Gandhi, founder and managing partner of Array Ventures. Array Ventures invests in founders focused on solving problems, leveraging big data, artificial intelligence, and machine learning. Visit us on array.vc. Support for today's podcast is brought to you by DLA Piper, a global law firm strategically positioned to serve and support high-growth technology companies, venture capital, investors, and founders wherever they do business. DLA Piper's lawyers help entrepreneurs lead successful businesses through experienced, cost-efficient legal counsel from formation, financing, M&A to IPO. To learn more, please visit www.dlapiper.com. On our show today is Oren Hoffman. Oren shares his views on why smart people make wrong decisions and more specifically, how to think about market size, pivots, and the focus of your company. Oren is the CEO of SafeGraph and previously of LiveRamp, which was acquired by Axiom in 2014 for $310 million. You ran rapidly Flybrand for for many years. What were, were you able to distill any takeaways from there that you would want to do differently, or something you'd pass on to the future found generation of founders? I think like um, rapidly Flybrand was like a pivot, so it's basically four years of rapidly, four years of Flybrand was a pivot in between, so it's basically like a restart of the company. Um, and and once we did the pivot to Flybrand, like it was just an incredibly successful journey. So. LiveRamp 2011, which was the first year of LiveRamp, we did a million in SaaS revenues. 2000 and, uh, 2012, second year, we did nine. 2013, wow. third year, we did 21. Um, and so it's just an incredibly successful journey once we did the pivot. Um, and so, um, and part of the reason why it was successful is like we picked a really niche market. We did one million in revenue first year in a market that was a total of two million dollar market, mm-hmm. um, and so we really kind of like we picked a market that we thought was really important and growing, but wasn't a big market and wasn't a market that anyone else was going to really care about. Mm-hmm. So give us it gave us the real opportunity to really grow into that market, expand into that market, um, and then a lot of people were willing to rely on us in that market because it was it, it never was a huge market. To, yeah. This year, library will do about two hundred million in revenue, probably. Um, I think it's the public numbers on it. Um, and and even today, even though it's still fast growing today, it's still not. It, maybe today it's a big enough market where people are interested in, but only till today was it big. And so you just it gave you a lot of opportunity to expand without a lot of competitive. And and I think that's really important. Um, most people pick like these these things that are just so ultra competitive and um, and, and they have these like really really smart really talented people competing against them and in some ways that's good because that gives you a lot of uh, it gives you a lot of pressure and um, to to do better and they're mm-hmm. certainly like sprinters do better when they're competing in the Olympics than when they're, they're just sprinting on their own mm-hmm. um, so it gives them definitely some pressure to do better um, but in other ways, it, 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 you, sometimes you end up doing these like weird feature matching things and other types of and spending in these weird ways and spending your time in weird ways in, in competitive environments. Um, whereas if, if you had a little bit of a smaller market, which is a little bit less competitive, 
gives you a lot more room to be innovative and a lot more room to actually do what's right for the long-term business and what's right for the long-term customer. So that's actually an interesting perspective because most investors want the total addressable market to be a certain size. Yeah. And you almost are bringing an interesting counter perspective, um, counterintuitive perspective of how do founders think about markets. What are, yeah, tell so us. I, I think this is a really bad, I think this is really, I think this is not the right thing. I don't think investors should be looking at TAM. Mm -hmm. um, and now, of course, the best case scenario is massive TAM and you and you own the market, Yeah. right? Um, and that, uh, and, um, that can happen, mm -hmm. and that's the that's the best case scenario. Right. But I would rather be small TAM owned market than large TAM and be like ultra competitive. Yeah. Right. Um, and so now some some businesses are just not designed in a way with, that that cannot that they have to be ultra competitive. Yeah. So most SaaS businesses are ultra competitive businesses, and they just have to be. Um, they're usually like the number one company, the number one company in the market has 30%, the right. number two company has 25%, the number three company has 15%, right. and they're just neck and neck and yeah. they're constantly fighting it right. out. And even the number three company ends up being a really good business and it's worth investing in that company, sure. etc. It's a big TAM, yeah. Yeah, yeah and even if it's yeah. a relative relative size TAM, yeah. right? Um, it doesn't even have to be that big. It could be a billion dollar TAM and all of a sudden you could have a decent size, mm. you know, you can have these decent, in terms of revenue, right? right? And you can have um, those three companies can all have yeah. uh, decent exits, um, um, etc. And so, um, uh, and so, but 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 if you can find a market, and the B two B, they tend to be middleware, they tend to be data co ops, they tend to have some sort of marketplace component to it, etc. If you can find a mark, if you can find the type of market where it makes sense to have a winner take most component to yeah. it. Um, then those markets are just way, way, way more powerful. A live ramp today is, is I believe, is the fastest growing, profitable SaaS company of its size. Um, uh, and so most companies growing at the rate that live ramp is growing are extremely unprofitable. Yeah. And the reason is it's because it's so competitive and yeah. have to invest all this money in sales and it's marketing. It's like the J curve that SaaS companies have to face. That's right. That's yeah. right. Well, a live ramp even at twenty one. When we went from uh, nine to twenty-one, we were profitable at twenty-one, um, and we did that with four salespeople. Um, so you can um, you 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 uh, you can build a much more efficient uh, business. Uh, now maybe you should be unprofitable, and you could grow even faster. Yeah. So you can make that case, but uh, but your but your but your but the competitive dynamics change the business quite a bit mm -hmm. if you can if you can uh, if you can own a market. And so you you do think that if you if you if a new if a founder is trying to start a company with a vision of going after a bigger market long term, but if they want to fix things and just kind of hone in one market and be a leader first, they can have that strategy and grow over time. Yeah, yeah, and look, every founder is going to be different, and right. you're going to have different. Like, it's, I think the most important thing is to try to own the market. Yeah. Now, if you can own the market and pick a massively big market. Okay. Great, um, but but usually that's not available yeah. to you, and so I would I would pick a super niche market, and I wouldn't even like try to think of the bigger vision. Yeah, I would just say, and, and the problem with investors is they're like, oh, you pick this market that only has a hundred million dollar TAM. Yeah, why am I going to invest in you? And 
the retort should be from an entrepreneur is, look, if I own this market, once I get like, if I own 60% of this market, and once I'm not growing at 100% year over year anymore in this market, like, That's do you awesome. think, well, do you think I'm a smart, we have a smart enough team, a good enough team <laughs> right. to move into a slightly adjacent market to continue to grow? Yeah. If you don't, you shouldn't invest in me, <laughs> right? Um, and if you do, yeah. then, then, I'm your, then I'm your person. And so that should be the retort. And if the investor doesn't think this person, this team is the right team to move to be able to move into this market, they definitely shouldn't invest, <laughs> right? You should yeah. invest in a good team that yes. you think is, is capable to, to move forward. And so the owning the market is really important and the team is really important. I think if you're an investor, the TAM I think is less important um, uh, of it. Do you think that with LiveRam doing so well, you pivoted a little too late? And this question is not particularly rap leaf yeah. uh, to live round conversion, but more um, founders often have to pivot. Um, and what is the right time to pivot or what is the right time to give up even? Yeah, there's definitely founders that pivot too much and there's founders who never pivot and should, right? Um, and you can't pivot every day um, uh, because you really need there. There's a long-term <clears throat> investment that, like, solely. So you need yeah. to have. Like, I don't think you should A/B test your strategy. Like, you should have a strategy, and your goal should be to never pivot from that strategy. Um, it's like I have a strategy. I have this belief. It's hard to prove belief. So you might. So it's somewhat like religion. Like mm -hmm. I believe in this particular thing. I this is where the world is going. That I believe. Yeah. It's hard to prove. And then you should be all in on that. If like later facts show you that it's completely mm. not right, or there's some serious problem with it, or something happens, then yeah, you should pivot. But you shouldn't like go in with like, oh, I have the I have multiple options. I'm going to try different things out. You should be all in on one strategy, and then you know if you know, hopefully that works out. That's the best case scenario. If it doesn't work out, then then you move to then you know you can move to another strategy. But moving to another strategy is very costly. Yeah, I think that's that's decision making in some ways, right? Like decide what you want to do with the data you have in hand and don't have multiple decisions. Just decide and then down the road, as you're saying, change it if you need to. But If, if you do, yeah. but your goal should be... You do should, not change yeah, it like, You should try to put yourself in a really small box and um, you're, you put the company in a really small box and, um, and clearly define what that box is. It's yeah. really helpful because if... If the box is really well known to everyone in the company, yeah. now you can push decisions all the way down. Yeah. And where the box is somewhat amorphous and it's changing a lot, this is where like every decision has to end up at the CEO or founder level, mm. um, and it makes decisions happen really, really slowly. And mm -hmm. um, and it, 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 this is not just for small companies. Yeah. Sometimes the big like yeah. big companies that are going through big transitions often end up in this like really. Uh, really big bottlenecks of decision when mm -hmm. decision, every decision has to go to like two or three executives yep. before it gets made. Ideally you want the, the, the most junior person being able to make the decision. And if they understand the true north of the company, if they understand the confines mm -hmm. of what the company will and will not do. Yep. And if you clearly state like we will never do X in five years, even though X is valuable, yeah. X is really important. We, our company will never do X ever. But isn't that hard to uh, say? You, you have to do it because now all of a sudden it gives the freedom. Uh, it, it really does confine the box, but now it gives the freedom for these uh, everyone in your company, every employee 
everyone around that company to operate within that box and to really start to understand that. Now, you, of course, you can always change your mind. Yeah. And companies can be wrong about things, change your mind, and then you have to like reblast out the vision, new vision right. to the company. Um, but it's better to like, even though there's some cost to change your mind, it's better to change your mind later uh, than to just say, oh, there's lots of things we could do. We're yeah. gonna do all, we can do all of these things, et cetera. Um, the other nice thing about putting yourself in a really narrowly defined box is um, is when you telegraph that that not only internally but when you telegraph externally, everyone knows everyone knows who, uh, uh, where you're competing. Right. And now all of a sudden, if, especially if the box is really small, well, most people will know. Okay, you're not going to compete with me. Yeah. You're setting yourself up to not compete with me. Yeah. You're not keeping your options open to compete with me. Yeah. You're build. You're making decisions to never compete with me. Yeah. And so now I can be friends with you. Now I can promote <laughs> you. Yeah. Now I can work with you, etc. And it, you know, for for a lot of companies, especially a lot of B two B companies, like you need a lot of alliances to mm -hmm. do well. And so it's really important to for everyone to know where you were. One one of the nice things about LiveRamp is it fit really nicely in this ecosystem, and so many companies end up relying on LiveRamp. Main one of the reasons was because LiveRamp had a really great product. The other reason was is because they knew LiveRamp was never going to compete with them, mm -hmm. um, and so it was never going to try to steal their business. We, we we didn't have these like extra lines of business to go compete with them. Yeah. And and then and then you can have lots of people who are rooting for you to succeed, which is can be really really helpful. You have to come up with like the narrowest box possible that you think is going to be important, yeah. and so and you should be actually over time. Most CEOs are over time really trying to grow the box. Yeah. I think if you're a really good CEO, you should be trying to shrink the box. Um, so every year or every quarter, whatever your planning cycle is, you should be like, how do I make my box even smaller? <laughs> So that really gives an opportunity for people to really, really innovate um, and really think about it. So you should constantly be shaving off and then literally say, like, I am never going to do this. And by the way, I think it's like like it's not in your top 20 priorities, right, or top 10 yeah. priorities. You should just say to people, like, I am never, never going to write a novel. Um, and look, you can reserve the right to change your mind in the future, <laughs> but just the freedom of taking these things off of your list in your yeah. personal life now really allows you to, to innovate um, and really focus on what you are going to do and the core things you are doing and then the core things that you really want to do that maybe you're not doing. I, I mean, I love the one phrase you had used at one point, which was like, smart people make wrong decisions. And it's related to what you're talking about, um, optionality yeah. and smart people. What is your point of view there? Yeah, well, I mean, I think smart people often way overvalue optionality. And I've met tons of really smart people and a lot of them will even say like the most important thing is optionality um, in business or optionality <laughs> yes. in life or all these other things. And uh, I think in business, like you want the best companies can be the ones that are, are the opposite of optionality where they're very rigid in what they're going to do. Yeah. Um, here's what we're going to do. Here's what we're not going to do. We're going to be extremely clear about that. I think that can be true with, with someone's career as well, where you eliminate options. Mm -hmm. So like there's lot. So the main reason people go to things like business school is to increase optionality. Uh, and I'm not long business school. <laughs> um, so I, I think in certain cases it can be really great. Right. Um, but outside of maybe two, two to four business schools today, it's probably uh, a net negative um, in terms of investment um, today, and um, and likely yeah. that likely that will continue. Um, 
Consulting, uh, same thing. Yeah, I think people who go do that thing for the now, if you want to be, a, if you if you're passionate about doing consulting, yeah, go do consulting. Right. But I just to go do consulting because it gives you optionality to go do other things in the future. Yeah. I don't think it's a good plan. Yeah. Um, if you're passionate about the law, and you really care about the law, my um, and my wife is passionate about the law. Go to law school mm. if that's something you really care about. But don't go to law school because you have a poli sci degree and you're not sure what to do yeah. and you want the options right. to go do some things in the future. Right. Um, so I think life is life is like that as well where you shouldn't be about just like increasing your optionality. Uh, you should have some sort of deterministic plan mm-hmm. um, to go do. Again, don't A-B test your life. Yeah. Like have a deterministic yeah. plan. A, a good plan beats no plan. Yeah. So what companies do you think you admire for following your advice here, right? Like are focused um, and stick and have done well because of that. I mean, I, I can arguably say like Amazon today is doing so much. Yeah. They're, they're not following this. So what, what, what do you think? Well, at a certain size, it makes sense to create other bets, right? And so at a certain size, it does make sense to go do other things and to expand. Um, and, uh, and so I, I, I think that's fine. But Amazon is like the rare company yeah. that you can look at where yeah. they actually were successful, right? So AWS is just a completely yeah. different business than, than Amazon.com, yeah. right? And, um, but it's like you, you brought that example up. It's, like it's, almost, it's almost proof that's that, <laughs> that because it's like really hard to find another company yeah. except for, you know, you, you, except for like maybe the Googles of the world or something like that yeah. that are just so successful. And it's extremely rare to find a company that wasn't first like a $50 billion market yeah. cap company who then went and did this. True. I mean, even if you look at Facebook today, they're like extremely, extremely yeah. focused. They're doing, you know, you know, yes, they have this like Oculus thing on the side, but everything else and basically like 100% yeah. of the revenues from Facebook all come from like the same basic thing, this kind of social thing, whether it's Facebook or WhatsApp or Instagram. Um, they're, they're all very, very similar products. They're doing similar things. Facebook today is very similar. The Facebook.com today is very similar to Facebook.com not that long ago, yeah. you know, uh, five years ago. It's just a better version today. Yeah. Uh, and so I think they've been just an incredibly focused, very disciplined company. Um, I would love to talk a little bit about your perspective on SaaS and where SaaS is today. It's shifted yeah. from when the category was a new category to charging people $10 per seat to now a hybrid SaaS with bigger enterprise contracts. So it's, it's shifted in various forms. What, what do you have an opinion on, on a good SaaS company and what their metrics should look like your dear from inception to year five? I mean, not necessarily the, the advantage today in starting a SaaS company is that it's way, it's way easier today. Mm -hmm. The number of vendors, that a given buyer has, has gone up 10x in the last 10 years. Um, and so if you had 40 software vendors 10 years ago, you have 400 software vendors today. Uh, and so they're used to buying from more places. Mm-hmm. They used to buy lots of software from a very small number of vendors. Now they uh, now the very large vendors have gotten hurt by mm-hmm. this trend. Um, but But... All these startups are, you know, and and now today, if you want, if you're a startup, even if you're a relatively small company, 
you can sell them to major, major brands today. They're used to buying from you. Yeah. Um, and whereas really, even five to eight years ago, it was incredibly difficult. If you wanted to sell into Best Buy or Target yeah. or Walmart or something like that uh, eight years ago, unless you had something like so amazing, it would be just incredibly hard even to get a meeting there. Yeah. Now they're very open to hearing from you, to meeting you, to and, and, yeah. and to trying you out, to paying 20K for the first year yeah. for something. And this is really exciting for, for SaaS companies. Yeah. There, there used to be a, a phrase in Silicon Valley in the 90s, um, this kind of phrase that it's not um, uh, like whether your company was a vitamin or an aspirin. Yeah. And the VCs would say, we only want to we only want to invest That's in aspirins. Yeah. We don't invest in vitamins. Turns out a ton of great companies in the last 10 years are vitamins. Such as um, They're features. Yeah. Uh, a lot of companies today are... But which ones are features that you like? Well, there are tons of them are features. Yeah. A lot, basically, the way you define a feature is, does another company that you're already you're already buying from this other company, mm -hmm. do they have that feature in their yeah. product? Yeah. And so you already get it for free. Yeah. And then do you still want to go with the startup instead? Yeah. So like Slack would be a great example. Yes. Like like Slack is in some ways it's it's a it's a it's a vitamin. Um, it's, yeah. a, it's just Green. a random feature, but yeah. it's like one of the most amazing B2B companies in history. Yeah. Uh, and so companies today, buyers today, even if they're getting this other feature set for free, they will buy the, the paid feature yeah. um, if that feature is better and if they can use it more. Now, there, maybe it has to be, it can't just be 5% better. Yes, it right? has to be a little so, uh, But luckily, if you're, if, you're, if you're fighting against someone where it's just a random feature in their big set, if they're a big ERP system, yeah. right, it's pretty easy to be 2x to 10x better yes. than that because they're not focused on it, they're not innovating right. on it, and if you use Slack, it's just way better than the feature set that was already existing beforehand. So, uh, and so there's just so many examples of that today. So I think a lot of the, um, a lot, a lot of investors like sometimes don't always see like what's happening in, in, in and, and just the number of vendors that are happening, the, the, the willingness for people to buy and so much easier to sell today than it was before. And that also means that relationships are way less important today than they were. So the value, the value of who you know is gone has gone down dramatically. Um, you can get foot in the door. You can get yourself in the door. If you want to sell into Walmart, you don't have to know people at Walmart. Of course that helps. Yeah. So if you know people at Walmart, it's a lot it's certainly helpful. Right. Um, but it used to be the only way yeah. to get in the door. Yeah. Now, if you have a good product and you send a cold email to somebody, yeah. there's actually a decent chance they may respond. Yeah, there is. Um, yeah. And then they'll go and they'll meet with you. Yeah. And then once they meet with you, knowing to, the value of knowing people goes down really, really dramatically, really, really quickly. Yeah. Um, because then they evaluate you on your marriage yeah. and they start to look at you. Now, certainly, if you have some history, if you have some, if you have a biography, yeah. they might evaluate you higher and so. Having some history, having uh, having knowing the value of knowing people isn't zero. Yeah, it's still important and still valuable. It's just not nearly as important as it was ten years ago. Interesting. I um, I like these counter theories. Uh, so, what do you still value? Is it the five to ten dollar per seat uh, kind of you know 
contracts. And if you're going after small verticals, that's hard to then get to a million dollar business, AR business, versus like a 60 to 100K kind of contracts um, in SaaS. So do you have a point of view there then? How, which one do you prefer and where do you think is SaaS trending? I, mean, I think they all can be good. So I mean, I, I my my background is in uh, the higher dollar ACB yeah. background, yeah. Um, and that's a that's a very different type of company. Um, if you're if you're Slack and you're doing the freemium yeah. kind of uh, that, that's also incredibly powerful and incredible. Yeah. So I think any of these things can work. Yeah. Um, you, what you do have to understand is the DNA of the people in the company mm-hmm. and understand their. So if these if the people in the company have like a come from like a B2C background mm-hmm. um, and like the folks at Slack did, yeah. then like um, building some sort of freemium product that has some sort of virality in it actually makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, and and they would, they're probably going to be a lot more successful than that than if they do more traditional enterprise sales type of model. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you should understand, you've got to play to your strengths. Yeah. Um, and understand like what your strengths are. Like I'm never going to start a B2C company. That's not something that I'm strong in. Yeah. Um, and so you should understand like what you're good at and then, and then, and then play to those strengths. So speaking of, um, now you have, you do a lot of reflection on markets and what, what is needed today. Is there any vitamins or aspirins that are real problems that you think uh, founders should be solving? And like a low-hanging fruit that should be addressed as I, a new company. I mean, I, I, I I'm sure there are like thousands yeah, of them. Of and, course. You know, like, you know, I'm not, I'm not like not in an incubator mode where we're yeah. looking at all these things. But um, I think there's like, I, I, I think there's 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 still like we're still in the very early days of uncovering all these opportunities. Some of these opportunities are, and some more of these opportunities are coming out because there's more vendors. So there's there's all these like interesting opportunities there. A lot of these vendors today are much more savvy than they were before. So it's a lot easier to pull data out of these mm-hmm. vendors. They have APIs, etc. Um, and so uh, there's this whole API economy, which is yeah. really exciting and um, and really interesting. Yeah. Uh, one of the one of the nice things about all these vendors that are mm-hmm. out there. Both the API vendors, the SaaS vendors, etc., is that if you're a startup today, you can hire way fewer people than you did before. Yeah. Uh, because each vendor essentially could act as X number of FTEs yeah. out there. Now it doesn't mean you're spending less money. Yeah. Because you're spending money on the vendor. Yeah. So if you're if you're WhatsApp and you spend money on Twilio, um, you know you're still spent. Well, I think WhatsApp spends tens of millions of dollars on Twilio right. every year, yeah. um, you're still spending a lot of money and it's, it's possible it would be cheaper for WhatsApp to do it in-house, but but it's actually usually not smart to go do it in-house because um, as you grow your company, you have all these communication issues yeah. with your company. And so if yeah. you can keep the number of FTEs uh, down, Right. Um, um, you you have you 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 are much better communicating. The worst company has like an n squared communication problem as it grows, but the best company probably has an n over two communication problem. Um, so even the best run company is going to is going to have, have communication problems yeah. as you scale. And so if you can figure out ways to have to 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 use vendors, yeah, use other APIs 
use other things to do what uh, what a, what a person might do. Now, in some cases, of course, you can if it's the core thing for your company. Yeah. Um, but there's lots of scenarios where you can. Obviously, tons of companies use AWS today. Yeah. Which is a great example of, <coughs> of something that the uh, you know of using another uh, another solution rather than doing it in house. Uh, Doing those types of things could add a lot of uh, could add a lot more capability in your company because by keeping your company small, it gives your company a lot more opportunity to uh, to be much more uh, to be much more focused. Um, so, you talked about your focus as being good as um, on the enterprise side of contracts, um, and so how does one like this is a big problem with a lot of founders. Um, it's not as easy. I cr it took me X amount of dollars to create this software. How do I go price it? Um, and it's one of your expertise because you are able to extract good capital um, and not just do like a ten dollar or whatever per user. You've done you've done a lot of thinking around this. So what what is your thoughts around pricing? Well, I think first of all you need to understand the market that you're in, and so um, if you're in a very competitive market. Versus, are you in a market where you can own the market? Yeah. Right. Um, and um, people think if you're a monopoly, you price higher. Actually, it's the opposite. Why if is that? You, if you own the market, you want to keep prices very low. Um, oh. If you if you um, if you're competitive, then you want to keep prices very high. So if you're in a competitive market, you need to you you almost certainly are pricing too low, and you need to raise the prices. Um, of your of your product because mm -hmm. you need to, you need really you need to pay for sales and marketing. Yeah. It's super competitive. Yeah. And um, and so you need to you need to understand your CAC and you need to yeah. understand all these other things and so you need to raise your prices. Um, and most startups in a competitive market usually that's the issue they have and they need to raise the prices. If you're trying to own the market, yeah. you should be doing the opposite. You should be doing everything possible to not make price an issue because you need to own the market. Mm -hmm. um, and if you own the market, you uh, first of all, if you own the market, your churn is going to be like super low. Yeah. So, uh, so the so the value of this customer is going to be for many, many years. My last year at LiveRamp, we had 96% retention and we had negative 29% wow. um, dollar churn. Um, and so, the, um, yeah, well, yeah. We, it was, it was, it was, it's by, it, it, if you, if you are for sure the best product in your market, right. if you're undeniably the best product right. in your market and you have a competitive price, yeah. everyone is going to go with you, right? Interesting. Um, if there's a, if, if, if there's lots of products in your market yeah. and, and one can make a case that lots of them could be the best, yeah. um, then, uh, then, then you should expect higher churn. And you're not going to win every deal. Yeah. Um, therefore, you need to be investing a ton more money in sales and marketing. And you see these SaaS companies, and they're like, sales and marketing is like by far their biggest yeah. expense. Yeah. Uh, live right R and D was by far our biggest expense. Sales and marketing was actually quite a low expense. And so, and so you have mm -hmm. to understand what company you have, and then invest accordingly. So for pricing um, the SaaS products, there's two ways I think I look at it somehow, which is Current competitor, what is a current, even if it's like an yeah. old school bad competitor, that's one way. The other way is figuring out the size of the market, doing some math, and who are you extracting dollars from. Do you have a thinking around that? I mean, I, I don't really. Like, how did you come up with, how do you come up with like a 
60K versus 100K to a customer, you know? For, I don't think it really matters initially. Okay. Um, and um, I think you, you know, maybe long term, like really kind of like diving into the price matters. But like initially, like it's really important to have customers using your product and like liking your product mm -hmm. um, and then and then renewing your product. Right. Uh, and so if you have a SaaS company with low renewals, you will not succeed. Yeah. Uh, so if you have a SaaS company with low churn, like it's really so much easier to succeed yeah. if you have low churn. Yeah. Right? Um, and so, uh, and, and especially if you can get into negative dollar churn yeah. uh, year over year, and, and most successful SaaS companies have negative dollar churn yeah. year over year. Yeah. Um, if, once, if you can get into negative dollar churn, you're, especially on the enterprise side, maybe yeah. not true on the other side, but yeah. the enterprise side, if, if you get to that point, like you're in a great scenario. That means you have built-in growth every year, yeah. even if you do nothing with sales and marketing. Yeah. Right? Uh, you have this built-in growth that's happening. Uh, and there's a lot of companies that have that. Uh, in fact, there's there's now private equity firms that are buying SaaS companies and slashing the sales and marketing budget to to you know to to you know make to, to slashing most of the right. sales and marketing budget and, and, and now just making these just milking these profitable entities yeah. for a really long time. Right. What do you think so with that, like what do you think for a sixty K or hundred K contract should like a your market, your sales and marketing, and all those all in expense should be to get that contract. I know it's not thought about it that way, but I I'm curious. Well, I don't really. I'm not totally sure, but one one thing, the other thing you should really understand about your product is like how differentiated it is, how technical it is, and how yeah. differentiated it is. Are you selling a commodity product? Yeah. Or are you selling a product that? Or are you selling a product on the product merits? Yeah. And um. And most people aren't honest about their own product. Mm -hmm. um, and so if you are selling a commodity product, you should have a very relationship-oriented salesperson mm -hmm. who's really good at building relationships, taking you out to the baseball game, taking you out to the right. steak dinner, building those relationships with you. Because right. if it doesn't truly matter to the vendor, right. which which uh, to the to the buyer, which vendor they choose? Yeah. Then, then you want you the person that. who's really you know you want to get the, yeah. the and that's the traditional salesperson yeah. who owns the room. Yeah. If you're a product company where you where really does matter the difference of the product yeah. to the end buyer, then your salesperson is going to look much different. You're going to have a much more introverted salesperson. Yeah. Um, you're going to have somebody who doesn't own the room. You're going to have somebody who's not taking people out to the baseball game or entertaining people yeah. or doing anything like that. Um, you're not going to be sending gifts to people all the time, <laughs> wine right. and all the other types of stuff yeah. or, or whatever. You're literally, you're literally going to be extremely technical. You're going to really understand the product. In fact, you can often tell. Like companies that have all these SEs, yeah, all these like they're often yeah. like the, they're often actually the more commodity products yeah. <laughs> because that means they have a salesperson who's yeah. like relationship oriented, yeah. <laughs> and the companies that don't have as many SEs, um, you know, per salesperson, that usually means they have a much more product oriented yeah. because the the salesperson uh, himself or herself has to be way more technical yeah. and way more involved. So that's like one way to look at it. If you're selling to an agency. Um, you're probably more of a commodity than if you sell direct to the marketing yeah. company, right? So there's different different heuristics that you can that you can look at to tell like are you are you uh, are you a uh, product oriented company or are you more a commodity oriented company?
And it seems like you're favorable towards the product-oriented companies. Well, I, I, there are plenty of commodity-oriented companies that can do incredibly well. It's, it's, it, I think it's fine to be a commodity-oriented company. You just have to be honest with yourself that you are. Yes. And then you're, you have to out-execute everybody yeah. um, by being a, building a better sales team, building a better marketing team, etc. Yeah. And there's plenty of amazing companies that do that. And, and it's just a different, it's a different type of company. And just be honest with yourself that you're in that company. Uh, thank you. Uh, lastly, you read a lot. Um, and I, I'm going to share a list of readings that you shared okay. with me with, with the group here. But is there a, on pricing and SaaS, there, there's a, is there any piece of material that you love reading that the audience should, um, founders should read and kind of get better at? Well, I think there's like two core books for um not just for B2B entrepreneurs, but probably for any technology entrepreneur yeah. that every technology uh, entrepreneur should book. There's the tactical book and there's the strategy book. Okay. The tactical book is is the Ben Horowitz book, The Hard Things About Hard Things. Yeah. And, um, and that's just like a great book where it gives you like tons of tactical anecdotes. Yeah. That I think are extremely helpful. And then the strategy uh, uh, book is Zero to One by Peter yeah. Thiel. Um, and, and, and that really gives you a sense of just how, like understanding your market, understanding the, the secret that you need to have, um, uh, um, et cetera. And I think reading those two books in tandem, uh, like that's way better than going to, to an MBA school or way better to do a whole bunch <laughs> Don't of Don't go for an MBA. <laughs> yeah, those two books, right, which will cost you $30 total, um, those two books together, um, will be just an incredible investment. Well, thank you, Arne. This is, I can ask you so many questions here, but this has been awesome. awesome. And maybe we'll have you back on the show on Great, other topics. I love it. Yeah, Thanks thank so you. much. Yeah, thank you.